Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sean Larkin. I'm a program producer here at ACME. I'd like to welcome you all to this afternoon's talk and screening. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people and to pay my respects to the elders of the Kulin Nation, both past and present. Uh, now, today's event is part of our China Up Close program, uh, which has so far explored the influence of Chinese moving image art and cinema through a rich program of exhibitions, talk, live events and film. Uh, so far in the program, we have exhibited the exquisite work of one of China's most prolific moving image artists in our Yang Fudong Filmscapes exhibition downstairs in Gallery 2. Uh, we've showcased a collection of films, including Mao's Last Dancer, Floating Life and the Home Song Stories in our Australian Perspective season, and presented a range of talks and screenings on contemporary China in our Perspectives on China Now program. Uh, today's Made in China talk and screening of the Iron Ministry marks the final event in that uh, Perspectives on China Now program. Uh, and we're lucky to uh, be joined by three exceptional speakers for our discussion today. Uh, firstly, though, I'm delighted to introduce you to our moderator for today's panel, the exceptional Christy Matheson. Uh, Christy is a senior film programmer here at ACME uh, and curated the selection of films showcased, showcased in the Perspectives on China Now series. Uh, Christy has also worked in independent film distribution and held positions in the programming department at the Brisbane International Film Festival and as an industry and award manager at the Sydney Film Festival. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Christy, who will introduce you to today's panel. Hello. Um, thank you for that very nice introduction, Sean. Um, so as Sean um, has explained, we've, we've been having a really wonderful summer program um, that has involved um, a lot of different programs that uh, relate to uh, the Yang Fudong exhibition downstairs. And I would urge you, if you haven't seen it yet, please do try and find some time to spend down there in the next few weeks before it closes because it is um, a really exceptionally beautiful show. Uh, so we um, today are screening a film called The Iron Ministry. Uh, this film comes direct from the Locarno and the New York Film Festivals and it's a film by an American documentarian called J.P. Synecdoche. Um, it was shot over three years and it weaves a very disparate tapestry of various train journeys into one seamless ride across a very complex uh, nation. Uh, like the films Leviathan and Manakamana, which are both products of the Harvard uh, sensory, sensory Ethnographic Lab, um, this film is really born out of the intersection between academia, uh, anthropology and traditional uh, filmmaking and I guess films that have more of an experimental um, edge on the documentary uh, genre. So the resulting film really allows us as the audience to ride on the train with the subjects. We're not mediated in any way by the documentarian. So um, it's very much a film where you get immersed um, into the journey yourself. So before we uh, take that rail journey, um, we are going to have a really fascinating discussion um, that is uh, connected in, in, a, in a sort of a 
a large way to the film, but not a direct commentary on the film. So today we're going to talk about um, urbanization in China. And unprecedented is the word that is commonly used um, when we talk about Chinese urbanization. The government uh, plans to move some 250 million rural residents into new towns and cities. And this, of course, is peaking huge interest um, worldwide. Um, this urbanization is reshaping rural China with some quite extraordinary consequences. And some of those we will talk about in our panel discussion today. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce our three panelists who will each give a presentation. Um, so they will they will come up, um, uh, but let me introduce them first. So Dr. Dan Edwards is a writer, journalist and academic, and he currently teaches Asian cinema and media at Melbourne University. Dan recently completed his PhD on China's independent documentary movement at Monash University in Melbourne. His first book, Chinese Independent Documentary, Alternate Visions and Alternate Publics will be published by Edinburgh University Press in May 2015. Would you please welcome Dan? Our second panelist uh, is um, Si Ching, who has practiced since 2002 in a range of private and public sector settings in both China and the United States before in the academic appointment at the University of Melbourne in 2008. His research concerns emerging issues of landscape planning, ecological urbanism, carbon neutral landscape and ecological infrastructure with an emphasis on sustaining the built environment. Would you please welcome Si Ching, seated in the middle. And our third speaker, Esau Kiat, is a deputy director for the Center of Contemporary Chinese Studies and a lecturer at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. His research covers China's domestic politics and foreign relations, with a particular focus on political and economic reforms, central local relations, and domestic dynam dynamics of China's foreign policy. His most recent monograph is titled Managing China's Sovereignty in Hong Kong and Taiwan, and it's published by Palgrave Mitchell. Millen, would you please welcome our final speaker. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome our speakers to uh, present either up here at the lectern or, or at the table. And then once we have done um, our presentations, we'll have a short um, interval for questions and then we'll get into the film. So I'll throw it to you. Thank you. Um, we have decided that I will kick off the discussion first by boring you to death. <laughs> but anyway, good, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, the moderator, Christy, and uh, members of the panel. I'd like to begin with the pleasantries by thanking the organiser, ACME, for the privilege to speak today. Since I am a political scientist by training, like I said, do indulge me uh, to, uh, in the next 10 minutes uh, while I bore you with the details of uh, Chinese politics of modernization. Now, I'm aware that today's uh, topic is about urbanization, but modernization as an associated topic has been something that has been debated in China for a long, long time. Modernization, in reality, as much as in Chinese intellectual, social, and political discourses, is not a new phenomenon. Modernization has been spoken at great lengths over the ra a range of interconnected ideas such as reform, gaige, or in its older form, bianfa, and self-strengthening, ziqiang, or even revolution has a hue of modernization in it. 
for the world. This has been spoken for uh, well over the past one and a half centuries, to the extent that it has been a constant theme in the Chinese mentality. From the mandarins of the bygone Qing court to modern fathers of the Chinese nation like Sun Yat-sen and Liang Qichao, from the demonstrators in Tiananmen on May 4th, 1919, not 1989, but 1919, to the old guards within the Chinese Communist Party during Yan'an days, or Mao Zedong in his revolutionary zeal in the form of the Great Leap Forward, or Deng Xiaoping in for modernization. What we have here is a nation that is highly obsessed with being modernized. Indeed, the whole idea of the Chinese nation was a modern construct out of a response to the onslaught of the West on China's shore. More than two centuries on, the Chinese is still grappling with what it means to be modern. Hence, when new Chinese state president Xi Jinping came into office in 2012, he connected with that age-old theme with his idea of China's dream. The dream was built on the aim to, to actualize the uh, grand revival uh, of the Chinese nation in the modern times. But dream, future, being modern, needs, a, needs very clear signposts to inform its dreamers where China is now and where it laid in the past. This is especially when Xi, Xi Jinping emphasized the need to embark on a Chinese path, rest his project on Chinese spirit and mobilize Chinese energy to fulfill this dream. Well, all seems good, except that over the last hundred or so years, the Chinese nation has been so focused on its search for modernity that it appears to have lost its understanding of what it is to be Chinese. The social polit and political engineering work carried out since 1949, as well as China's current ambitious economic reforms, merely exacerbated this sense of disorientation that requires more than charting a path to the future. The answers lies in the responses to more basic questions. Who are we? What do we represent? Where have we been? How have we come to where we are? And so on. In other words, what lies in the future requires a soul search into the past. The future makes no sense without the present and the present to its past. Xi Jinping has a far bigger challenge in his hand than to ask China to start dreaming. This entails re-interrogating old assumptions and discovering new ones. Hence, 2014 will go down in the, into the record as a year of learning history. To quote, history is the best teacher, unquote, to use Xi Jinping's aphorism. For more than a few occasions, Xi has invoked the need to return to history, to re-examine and re-evaluate traditions and values in order to establish that interconnectedness. In the midst, he, and indeed the political and social structure as a result, rediscovered Confucianism. In 2013, as the newly inaugurated Chinese Communist Party leader, he conducted a high-profile visit to Chifu, hometown of Confucian, Confucius, to pay tribute to the old, to the old Chinese sage. He extolled 
the ancient virtues of Confucius as the guiding light of modern China and used Confucian adages on more than several occasions when addressing the nation. In his words, quote, to understand present-day China, to know present-day Chinese, one must delve into the cultural bloodline of China and accurately appreciate the cultural soil that nourishes the Chinese people, unquote. At the same time as he pursues a project to transform China based on the rule of law, he was quick to remind his fellow leaders in a group study session in October last year that governance should combine both Li, which is a Confucius concept of ritualistic order, and law, so Li and law, and virtues should preside over penal codes. In Chinese, Li Fa He Zhi, De Zhu Xing Xing Fu. Xi Jinping shows that he's willing to go where previous leaders were unwilling to venture, to question the very foundations of the ruling regime. The telling of World War II history follows a certain formula in China, one that was refined over decades of careful management of historical narratives to legitimize the CCP rule. The anniversary of the Nanjing Massacre, for example, was made a national day of remembrance by the National People's Congress last year. Discussions on Nanjing Massacre for decades after 1949 were intentionally hidden from the public domain for an obvious yet widely unknown reason, that Nanjing was a Kuomintang capital and frontline during the Sino-Japanese War. Discourses on, of heroism and sacrifices of the Kuomintang and those supporting the previous regime were not to be told in the political correct narratives of CCP, uh, CCP-led war against Japanese aggression. Japanese history revisionism in recent times, warmer cross-strait relations, as much as the rise of internet journalism all contributed to this change of heart but these are probably no more important than to send a clear message to the Chinese nation of the CCP's commitment to question previous narratives to chart a way for the nation's future. I've had the opportunity to visit Nanjing for the commemoration in December last year. The level of which the commemoration was staged set the tone for future. Many commemorations uh, for future, many commemorations to come. The TV images of cars stopping right in the middle of the road and pedestrians held in the streets when the air, rain, air raid horns sounded. The vessels in Yangtze River drifting quietly with their engines switched off in the minute of silence. Of young pioneers, literally primary school kids, sobbing at the, his, at, at the stories of the massacre retold. All these were, were enacted to remind the Chinese nation of its past in the slogan, forget not national humiliation to revitalize the Chinese nation. Modernization and the future have a face, and the face here is history. As a political scientist, I cannot help but to talk a little bit about what this means to all of us here. China's re-emphasis on the past is a domestic project, but one that has huge external dimension. 
And I'm talking here the relationship between Chinese nationalism and its view of the past. It is probably, it's probably known to many of you here that modern Chinese nationalism is a humiliation-based nationalism, one that relates to the century of humiliation that the Chinese nation experienced between 1939 and 1949. Modernization was an outcome of this perceived humiliation by the outside world, and so was nationalism. And that legacy lives on today. Invoking the past does breeds tension with competing visions of the world, and by extension, raising tensions between China and other holders of these competing visions. History and competition over its authenticity and over its discursive control is going to take the center stage in the Asia-Pacific for still many years to come. This relates to almost all countries that have a, that has, that have a historic relation with China, be it antagonistic or benign. Without painting the glass half empty, I wish to convey the urgent need to bring it, history as a topic back in to, our, to further our understanding of China and its relations, relationship with the world. While we are here today watching this film, film on uh, modernization and urbanization in China in the recent times, it is quite easy to forget that this nation has a long memory of pursuing modernity. At the same time as we watch the growth of China's railway network expanded, Chinese forefathers has toiled, argued, fought, and even sacrificed for that debate of, modern, of modernization for, for the better part of two centuries. These memories have persisted, and as I've argued, will continue to persist as China goes to its past to search for its future. This narrative that we are visiting today is a small part of the larger picture related to China's modernity as a, continue, as a nation continues its search for its place in the world. Thank you. Um, at this point, I would just ask if our other panellists would like to jump in or would you like, should we go to our next presentation and then have a larger discussion at the end? Is that... Does that work well? No? I think that, you know, something that might be really interesting for us to pick up at the end if we have time is it's very interesting for us to see this um, a discussion framed in a historical and cultural context rather than an economic context, which I feel is where the, the discussion is always framed. So perhaps we can pick that up at the end. But uh, now would you please welcome Xi Ching. Thank you, Christy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, um, Christine and panelists. Um, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about China's urbanization and the, the impact. Um, I was actually born in China in the 1970s and um, in the countryside. And um, obviously, I'm now living in the number one livable cities anywhere in the world, so I'm uh, urban now. So I would begin with my life experience of uh, changes in environment when um, urbanization takes its way in the world. Um, in 1970s, when I was in my hometown, the people in the countryside basically live in the um, villages. So the villages are the smallest um, remote settlement in the countryside. 
and then in the village is generally about 200 to 300 people in the village and then um, villages are connected with the other villages and in between there are farmland and then woodland patches and um, there is only one single primary school you know uh, serving a bunch of uh, villages and then I have to went to the primary school for my primary education and um, what I remembered about this part of my life is that the peacefully beautiful um, rural landscape and environment um, that uh, produce most substance to support the local people to survive. So my first urban encounter was after I finished my primary school and then went to high school in the, in the town, a local town, as a small urban center in the region where people can go by and sit in buying stuff. So there were a few um, streets and markets and restaurants and um, one or two bus routes, the public transport, and um, of course the high school. Um, there are more people in that um, urban center, but I found it was everything was generally quiet and then, um, clean, everything is still in order, and the town was still a pleasant memory in my mind. And since started to change when I finished high school and went to um, Wuhan uh, for uh, college, and Wuhan is the um, capital city of uh, Hubei province and the, the largest city um, in the province and also the largest city in the whole central China. Um, so there were even more people in the city and, then, um, and I found it was overwhelming, noisy, disordered, messy, and confusing at most times. And there are too much traffic and sometimes there are car accidents and so I find it's a, a little bit dangerous place. Um, so since when even worse, when I finished my undergraduate and went to Beijing, the capital city of China, for my um, graduate study, so I, I took a train from Wuhan to Beijing. It took 20 hours and at that time, the slow, um, um, the high-speed rail, the bullet train as we have today. Um, so in 1990s, Beijing only had the second railroad and the third railroad. If you're familiar with the geography of Beijing, you would see that at the center of the city, there's a forbidden city in the Tiananmen Square. And then outside, um, um, two kilometers outwards, there's a third railroad. So when I was um, uh, graduating, uh, the city started to construct the fourth railroad. And I left the, uh, uh, Beijing and went to the States uh, uh, to seek um, more advanced um, um, postgraduate education. So by the time I um, finished with the US and came to Australia and take my uh, academic appointment with Melbourne University, and Beijing has already got the, the, the fifth railroad and the sixth railroad and the urbanized area has been doubled. So um, today China has the single biggest built-out infrastructure anywhere in the world and also in the history of mankind. It has been spending a share as much as um, almost 9% of the GDP um, on the uh, infrastructure construction. So the um, absolute number is huge. It's billions of um, dollars spending on the um, construction of infrastructure and making China the largest market for um, infrastructure. 
So today there are more than um, 170 mass transit systems, 50,000 new skyscrapers, and 5 billion square meters of new roads constructed. So where urbanization and urban development bring economic benefits, particularly in the short term, they also induce negative impacts on the whole society. Normally, by a series of risk factors, including various effects such as the transfer of land property rights and population migration. So since 1990s, many plots of land has been expropriated from farmers to establish the so-called um, um, economic development zone or the high-tech high industrial park. So the farmers um, deprived of their land are no longer farmers. They have to migrate. And there are basically two types of migration. One is the displaced farmer. The other is the spontaneous um, migrants, basically the young people, to um, move into cities to seek a fortune in the cities. So this massive infrastructure system um, has facilitated the movement, the migration of almost 10 million Chinese people from rural countryside to urban centers every year since 1990s. Um, either way, the newcomers to cities become the so-called urban population, but they don't have the urban hukou system. The hukou system was created by the um, Maoist era to uh, separate um, urban population and rural population to they can enjoy different social welfare. So this newcomers to cities, they don't, they're not in the system, they're not in the hukou system. So they don't have access to the welfare, such as the um, schools and jobs and uh, healthcare and so on. So main risk factors between urban and rural areas comprise conflicts, so in property, resources, and development. Since the urban rural conflicts have been intensified in China's, by China's rapid urbanization, industrialization in the last uh, 30 years or so. The um, rapid transformation in China due to large-scale urbanization coupled by um, migration and motorization has caused dramatic environmental problems such as um, air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, changes in people's value, and style, lifestyle, following the, the rise of the second generation of uh, consumers. So these problems are um, interrelated and weaved together at environmental and economic imperatives often seem to pull in different directions. Thus, this environmental protection and economic growth issues must be considered together. Um, the, this is because the issue of environmental protection and um, uh, environmental deterioration abatement cannot be contained within national frontiers. In the area of uh, globalization, I would say that China's economic and environmental challenges are not just China's. They are the challenge for the entire world. So all countries and all of them have to collaborate to face this challenge. Secondly, we need to think in a global perspective on a sustainable way of production, consumption, reproduction, recycle, and resource management. So there should be a fundamental change in our lifestyle. 
from resource-intensive and exploitation to a healthier, more efficient way of life. So a different lifestyle with minimum ecological footprint, including carbon footprint, water footprint, and so on. And the last thing I would like to talk about is the um, design of the cities, because I'm a um, designer, um, a planner. I work in uh, Melbourne School of Design at University of Melbourne. So my area of study is landscape and urban planning, covering the overlapped area of rural and urban landscape, as well as the economic and environmental dimensions. So I actually think a lot of it is going to be back to the design of a city and how do we capture many of the traditional Chinese values and stay in harmony with nature, with integration of the society all around the common ground in the city. And how do we go back to that? The competition now is about finding those technologies that can both increase urban productivity and do permanent good to the urban ecosystem of our environment and to deliver high quality of urban life to all urban developers. And there are a lot of challenges ahead, but it is the way to go. Thank you. And um, our final speaker is Dan. And, and um, as a film academic, um, You'll be speaking about representations of urbanization on screen, um, but I'll, I'll throw over to you for your presentation. Thank you. Okay, sure. Um, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thanks to my first uh, two panelists who didn't bore us at all. They, they were both fascinating um, talks, and there's many things I think we could say. I took a slightly uh, different approach, and really have just. Um, noted down a short response to the film itself, uh, which I was able to watch earlier this week. Um, a film that kind of embodies a lot of the issues that um, my first two fellow panellists have talked about. Uh, so I hope I'm not giving too much away in my response to the film, but it's not really a plot-driven film, so I don't think it'll be uh, too much of an issue. So I'll just read that out, um, if I may. It starts with a distant sound in the darkness slowly building to a screeching, discomforting cacophony. Gradually, we descend into the world initially evoked only by sound, a dark, cramped, Dante-esque space of steel, rubber and glass. It's inhuman, a space circumscribed by machines that seem to roll ever onward, impervious to their human cargo, and beyond the power of any individual will to stop or even divert. Welcome to the world of China's rail network, one of the largest in the world, and like everything else in China, expanding at an explosive rate. The coming of the railway changes everything, one passenger comments to camera, referring specifically to the Beijing Lhasa line completed for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. She draws a parallel with America's expansion westward in the 19th century, with all the attendant development and opportunity and disaster for the land's indigenous inhabitants. As in much of the world, the railways in China are central to the experience of modernity. The building and maintenance of the lines bring change, and the lines in turn become vehicles for the incursion of agents, bringing even greater changes through economic integration with the outside world. After evoking the mechanistic inhuman aspect of the railway environment, 
a human element slowly enters the frame. Within the world of steel and glass, we see hunks of raw meat, a uh, raw flesh, sorry, hung from the walls in what appears to be an improvised butcher shop. And then we see an old man peeling a vegetable, squatting in the rattling vestibule of an equally aged carriage. This is the lively, overcrowded world of China's hard seat class, where life in all its vitality, humour, dirt and exhaustion is always inescapably in your face. As the film progresses, we gradually move up through the other options available on Chinese trains to the still crowded but cleaner and more orderly soft seat class and hard sleepers, to the refined lace and quiet of soft sleeper carriages. And finally, towards the end of the film, we arrive in the vacuum-sealed, air-conditioned sterility of one of China's new bullet trains. People here no longer seem to interact, let alone talk. Indeed, there seem to be few, uh, few people present. Instead, well-dressed, isolated individuals simply gaze at their mobile phones as they glide, glide across the country at hundreds of miles per hour. J.P. Sneerdecki's intriguing documentary, The Iron Ministry, shows us the many levels of development and many degrees of modernity coexisting in contemporary China. From carriages little, little changed from the 1980s packed with rural folk bearing produce, to high-tech, high-speed bullet trains racing into the future. In tracing this journey, the film also traces the contours of China's class system and the ways in which it plays out at the level of daily life. To have money means you can insulate yourself, to a degree, from your compatriots and the world outside. You can partake of the most up-to-date transportation imaginable and move around at great speed. And the faster China's upper middle classes can travel, the further they seem to pull away from those still toiling on slow trains in the hard seat class, where life may have improved over the past 30 years, but where the basic conditions of life in many ways remain much the same. Sneerdecki, it seems to me, is very much drawing on the work, uh, oh, sorry, on the Frederick Wiseman mode of documentary filmmaking in the Iron Ministry, observing not so much individuals, although there are some very memorable individuals along the way here, as you'll see, but observing more a system, an institution at work. In doing so, he reveals something of the invisible power structures underlying any society ordering and largely determining our everyday life experiences in ways that we frequently take for granted. By working in the tradition of Frederick Wiseman and the direct cinema style he pioneered in the US in the 1960s, Sneerdecki is also aligning his film with much of the independent documentary work that has been done by Chinese directors over the past 25 years. Going back to the 1990s, Duan Jinchuan drew on Wiseman's observational methods in films like Number 16, Barcourt South Street, which was about the workings of a low-level government office in Tibet's capital, Lhasa. More recently, the festival favourite, Wang Bing, draws on some of the same methods in films like West of the Tracks and Till Madness Do Us Part, which screened at MIF last year. Uh, which relentlessly depicts daily life inside a poorly funded mental institution in southern China. 
China's varied documentary scene these days also encompasses many other styles and approaches. But Sneodeki is building upon a rich tradition that exists both within China and the West, this kind of observational mode of documentary. Eschewing the easy assumptions and cliches that inform much television journalism about China, and the explanatory voiceovers favoured these, these days by most, most television documentaries. Sneerdecki's subtly layered film reveals much, comments little, and leaves us many scenes, ideas and thoughts to ponder, as China's trains and the country's prolonged burst of economic expansion steadily roll ever onward. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, we have a few minutes for questions, so if anyone from the audience has a question um, that they would like to pose to any of our panellists, please, uh, if you could raise your hand. I'm going to bring a mic over to you so that we can hear you better. Oh, thank you to all speakers for a f fascinating um, presentation. My query is this, and it, I think it kind of uh, goes to the first two speakers' points. With the acquisition of arable land and displacement of people, you have issues of social dislocation, obviously, but also, um, I saw in the Guardian Weekly recently an article, Can China Feed Itself? And if you acquire, as you were saying, that much arable land, does that inevitably lead to expansion in Africa and acquisition of land in countries like Australia? Um, can China feed itself? There's a, a question raised, actually, I think, of 20 years ago by... Um, uh, a sign is in Brownings to the United States. And uh, as a matter of fact, today, if China's um, stopped importing foods from the other countries, and then what produced in China is not enough for all the Chinese people, that is a very old question. Um, the, the basic argument that um, uh, Chinese government would uh, have is that the increase of a productivity, the potential of increased productivity, and the management of the land resources has, um, you know, can be more efficient and then can actually introduce uh, new technologies to improve the productivity and, and so on. Um, but I, I have the same concern, to be, to be frank. And then the modernization or the urbanization of China has to consider this basic needs of the population. So what do you, do you have enough food? There's a basic question. And then the economic growth, um, people are in China getting richer and richer, and richer but um, urbanization, economic growth, the ultimate purpose is whether people's life quality has been improved. So with all the um, issues of environmental degradation, the pollution of uh, soil pollution, air pollution, water pollution, it's, it's very hard to say that you're getting richer and your life quality is increased. So it's a very good question and, and the Chinese government has ready to think about this and where you're doing those things, um, green economy, um, maintaining protection environment, but what is the um, um, basic base on which the country will be um, based and then 
going forward to the next um, um, century and longer term. I think that question of environmental degradation is really central to that question as well because the whole question of food safety in China is huge, yeah. isn't it? So it's not just a question of whether um, enough food can be supplied but the quality of the food that is being supplied um, because the soils are so, um, so poisoned now, uh, the air is so poisoned uh, and so much of the process is kind of involved in food production. Um, threaten the safety of the food supply, which is one of the reasons they're buying up huge tracts of land in Victoria. But one thing you probably have to weigh in is that um, the calorie intake of average Chinese actually increased dramatically over the last 30 years. Um, well, not that they start off with a lot of food anyway, but the point is um, whether China can feed itself is... Um, honestly, nobody can answer that question. No one not even the Chinese leadership, given the fact that there's a greater demand for different food quality, like you said, you know, importing of food from, from all over, the huge demand for quality meat, quality milk, dairy products and stuff like that nowadays. So it's high or difficult. But um, that brings me to the point that, uh, back to what we talk about uh, urbanization and modernity. Now, one of the biggest criticism that international society has towards China is actually the one-child policy. Now, at the, uh, when, when uh, China started, off, uh, to, started to open its doors to the rest of the world in 1979, they have a population of around, what, 950 million people? Almost a billion? And now, 30 years on, you're looking at 1.5 billion people. 1.5. All right. Imagine if that one-child policy has not been implemented, what kind of environmental human disaster that we're looking at. Well, that aside, it's like um, what the question raised was really how do we feed such a huge people? It's not a question for China. It's a question for the world. It's a question for the world. I, I do agree. And then to add to that, it's... Um the rise of the um, second the generation of consumers, they have a different lifestyle. So in the past, this is the um, concept of uh, um, the food chain or the um, allergy pyramid. So vegetarians actually have a smaller footprint than the um, people who basically eat meat. And then the um, um, food requirements, the quantity of food, and then the different um, um, variety of food that the second generation would require actually would add to this problem. And then people are a lot um, just to, to get them not from starving, but uh, from a lifestyle to their own choice. We might have time for one more question at the back. How significant is advertising? in the promotion of consumer attitudes in modern China. Watch Chinese television and you'll... <laughs> there's an ad about every 30 seconds. All huge questions. But, well, I mean, to answer the short answer to your question is, I think advertising plays a huge part in um, consumer society in China, of course, as it does everywhere. Um, and the, I mean, Chinese television, yeah, is absolutely permeated with advertising. Or the, I mean, Chinese television is kind of an interesting phenomenon because it all remains state-owned, uh, but it's a highly commercialised system. 
So the stations are expected to be uh, largely financially independent now and compete with each other, as does like all of the media, really. So even though most of it either remains uh, directly state-owned or state-owned by indirect means, um, the media is highly commercialised and highly reliant on uh, advertising revenue. So it's a very central part of the contemporary Chinese economy, absolutely. Just to put in the perspective, um, the most important program of the day by CCTV is actually the 7 o'clock news. And uh, it, was, it was reported that uh, a one-minute segment of uh, advertisement for that uh, during that hour okay uh when fetch as much as one billion rmb mm -hmm. a one minute segment fetch uh one billion rmb you're talking about 200 million uh australian, australian dollars yeah. so that is the power of advertisement in china today okay and a lot of a lot of uh, uh advertisers are willing to pay for it nonetheless because they reach out they beam out to a billion one at 1.5 billion audience mm. okay and 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 the images that goes through the television like what Dan has explained actually spurs on that 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 uh, consumerism marketization commercialization of uh, of consumption um, and on top of that you're also looking at uh, increasingly Chinese people traveling out I mean, if you visit Melbourne Airport today, you don't see just English signages, but Chinese signages. This, that, and when they return, these tourists return, or studies, students who have resided overseas return to China, they bring the, along with them that the mode of consuming uh, back to China. And these are kind of, kind of spreading effect within the Chinese society. So it's not just the advertisement. If you, the advertisement is just one part of the, of the larger picture. But you're really looking at that, that increasing globalization and the processes of, of consuming that spread across the society today. Mm. And you've seen that across the whole of East Asia in the last like, 20, 30 years. Pretty much. Places yeah. like South Korea. Yes, pretty much, yes. Um, we will have to wrap up our panel, which um, is a shame because it's, this has brought out a lot of questions, which I'm sure you all have. But um, I would like to thank all of our panel members, and would you please um, welcome, uh, help me thank them? Um, I would I would urge you to stay for the film because I think that you know while this discussion has brought up lots of different uh, threads that we could um, go down. Um, I think it comes back to this point that the world is an endlessly fascinating place and um, until they invent teleporting, we can't get to um, everywhere that we would like to see. Um, so I'd urge you to stay and have a look at the film because I think um, uh, what it does give you is a really um, unmediated insight into um, a, a tiny space on a tiny part of the planet which we're all fascinated by and um, hopefully we can all get there one day. So thank you all for coming this afternoon. I hope you enjoy the film and please again thank our panel. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME channel and the ACME website.